John and Nino are in Iowa. Right, I was going to say Idaho. I don't know. It's not the What's the difference? <laughs> Seriously. Mm. Flyover state, you know. <laughs> Any islands. Mm. Um, so visiting their granddaughter, Jeanette. And so, uh, so today we have the blessing of having Pastor Mark Wellman come to deliver the word as I prayed for him during, uh, during the prayer. And Mark comes to us from Jersey. In fact, he's a product of New Jersey, as am well, half of my, my upbringing. And so all the more reason we must be praying for him. And, uh, but Mark is a newly assistant pastor at Redeemer Hoboken. And they hired him for the express purpose of sending him out inside in about a year to plant a church in Jersey City. Isn't that wonderful? And we at this church, we love to support church plants as we have prayed for and loved Ascension Church, Ascension church and uh, Ascension, I'm sorry, so and uh, Ascension, Paraguay, right? And uh, Grace Hampton as well. And so we look forward for the privilege of being partners with you and praying for you as you prepare and as you launch. Uh, just one more thing about Mark that I want to say. I don't know this brother very well. Well, I'm looking forward to getting to know him, but I'll say that normally when a church invites someone to be a guest speaker, right, uh, for pulpit supply, we don't ask them, we don't tell them what to preach on. It makes it easier for them, and they can go back to things that they have prayed or preached and preached very effectively. But we're in the middle of our Redeemer, our Roman series, and that thing is not slowing down. And so Mark prepared a message, and so I'm guessing 20 hours of labor for us. And I think that says something about your character and your love for us, and we appreciate you, brother. So can we give, give him a hand right now, just and welcome him, encourage him. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's a great privilege to be here. Uh, you know, I've been here many times during the week, but this is my first time sharing a Lord's Day service with you all, so, it, so it's nice to see you. I want you to know that one of the great services that you all performed for the regional church, for the greater church, was when you called Pastor John to be your pastor. Uh, you know, it was, I think, maybe 15 years ago that John came here, and at the time, our presbytery or our regional association of churches had a lot of young guys, and so John became one of the token old guys. I was actually a young guy 15 years ago, believe it or not. But, uh, but he's become a great mentor, a great advisor, a great friend, a great pastor to pastors within the presbytery. And so for that, I want to thank you for sharing him, for bringing him, and, and he's become just personally a, a really close friend of mine who, who I've grown to appreciate and love. So it, it's, it's really a privilege to be here today. And... Um, Glad to preach on Romans 8. I must say, you know, I've preached a few sermons in my day. I've been a pastor for almost 25 years, and I, I probably a few on this passage, so, so it wasn't too much of a burden to put together another one for you. In fact, it was something of a joy, because this is, uh, you know, one of those passages we like to go back to. It's Romans 8, 28 through 32. I think it's printed in the little program insert you guys got. Paul continues, For we know that those... Who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. And what shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that you would open our eyes to your amazing sovereignty, your providence, your plan, and the way you're working in our midst to accomplish something much greater than we can imagine. Show each of us what it means to live as those who are part of the story that you're writing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Romans 8, 28. You know, I think after John 3, 16, it might be the most memorized verse in the New Testament. All things work together for good for those who love God. I think it's one of those, those most frequently plaque verses. You know, you see it hanging in, in people's homes. Uh, it's one that we go to. It's one that you need. You know, if you got John 3, 16, that God loved the world, and John, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good. I think you can get through life with those two verses alone in some ways. Tell you everything you need to know about the way God is working. But I think you need to understand that this is a powerful principle that all of us are desperate to hope is true. Even if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, even if you've never believe, read the Bible, you, don't, you think that Romans are uh, people who come from a certain city in Italy. Uh, still, this idea that our life is not just a random series of events, but that there is a higher power or a God who's working things out is something that we have to hold on to. You have to believe this to get through life. That's why when bad things happen, people always say, well, this happened for a reason. Or something bad happens, there's an injury, there's an accident, there's a loss in your life, and people come up to you and say, something good will come of this. How do you know that? If this is just an impersonal universe and everything's just governed by chance, maybe it happened for no reason whatsoever. If, if there is no God who's overall and who's orchestrating things, maybe nothing good is going to come out of this and we're just going to suffer and suffer more and more. But if you're a believer in God, one of the great assurances he gives you and me, one of the great hopes he gives us, is that he is in control and that life is not just one thing after another, but God is at work accomplishing his plan and writing his story. And your life is not a random series of events, but it's a chapter in the story of God's work redeeming this world and extending his kingdom. Your life is part of that story and everything that happens is an essential and critical element of a story that's so great and so glorious that you couldn't have imagined it and you couldn't have written it because it's better and higher than anything you could have imagined or anything you could have put together. And that's a powerful principle to live by. There's a certain logic to what the Bible tells us. You know, even if Romans 8.28 wasn't in the Bible we would know that it was true. It could be a doctrinal proposition because the Bible tells us in many, many places that God loves us, that God is love, which means he wants what's best for us. And the Bible assures us that God is wise. And because God is wise, 
He knows what's best for us. And the Bible affirms that God is all-powerful. And because he's all-powerful, he's not frustrated by forces that are greater than himself. And so he can accomplish what's best for us. So because of God's love, because of God's wisdom, because of God's power, we know that all things work together for good without even reading Romans 8.28, but it's a convenient and helpful summary of that hope. I think it's one of the most therapeutic things to reflect on when life spins out of control, when life feels out of control, we can go back to this hope that, well, I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why God allowed this loss. I don't know why God allowed this pain, but I'm going to believe and I'm going to trust that all things will work together for good. A couple years ago, I was going through a particularly difficult and disorienting time and meeting with a pastor friend of mine. I said, this can't be God's will for me. And he said to me, well, I think it must be God's will for you because it's happening, right? And that's, that's an assurance we can have. Sometimes the only reason we know that what's happening to us is good is because it's happening it must be God's will, and we simply need to trust in, in it. It's a source, I think, of, of peace in the midst of, uh, in, in the midst of whatever is going on. It, it, it helps us overcome regrets about decisions we've made in the past. You know, things we, look, we all look back in our life, and there's things we wish we would have done, choices we would have done differently, directions we wish we hadn't taken. But we can look at all those and say, well... That's part of God's story for me. I don't understand why God allowed that. I don't understand why God directed me in that way or why I did that, but God knew what he was doing, and so I can just trust that so we don't have to be burdened by regret about the past. We don't have to be burdened by worry about the future because we might not be in control, but God is in control, and God is going to orchestrate things. God is working things out. It's also one of the great cures, I believe, for bitterness about what happens to us that other people accomplish and that other people foist on us and that other people do to us and and the great illustration of that is the story of Joseph that was read from Genesis 50 you remember the story of Joseph I mean he came from about the most dysfunctional family you can imagine he was the little brother and his older brothers hated him so much I mean some of you might have little brothers but uh, can you imagine hating your little brother so much that you actually sell him into slavery and then go back and tell your dad that he must have died and then just forget about him? That's what Joseph's brothers did to him. And then if you know the story, decades later he's reunited with his brothers and they're worried, what's Joseph going to do to us? Because now he's the one in power and they're powerless. And they come to him and Joseph says, I've prayed about this, I've thought about this, I've forgiven you guys because I know that even though you meant it for evil, God meant it for good, the saving of all these lives. So Joseph was able to see in his life that God was writing a story that was greater and more complex and more profound than anything he would have written for himself. And so even the bad things that happened to him were redeemed and became good things. So when we gain this perspective, it gives us a way to even let go of our bitterness and our anger and our frustration with, with those who've let us down or those who have hurt us in the past because we see how God is even using those things to accomplish his purpose and to write his story 
for our lives. But at, so, so this is a powerful principle, but one of the things I've observed about anything that's powerful is it has to be handled carefully. A powerful tool, a powerful gun, a powerful motorcycle has to be dealt with carefully or it can hurt a lot of people. And I believe the same thing is true of this, of this verse. And this doctrine is we need to be aware of the potential pitfalls even of the way we handle this powerful truth. One of the things to observe here is it doesn't say that all things that happen are good. It says all things work together for good. So it, it admits the fact that bad things happen. Bad things happen in our lives and we get sick and we become disabled. We lose our job. We lose relationships. Uh, our plans fall apart. Our, our agenda for our life doesn't work out. Bankruptcy is a bad thing. Cancer's a bad thing. A divorce is a bad thing. Bad things happen in our lives. What it says is in the midst of those bad things, God works things for good. And, uh, but we've got to be even careful about how we talk about that. I think sometimes we take this verse and there's a presumption that comes with it because we want to see how every bad thing led to something good. So we say, well, I'm so glad I lost this job because that led me to a better job. Or I'm so glad this relationship ended because that led me to a better relationship. Or I'm so glad this deal didn't go through because that led me to this deal. And sometimes the day after a difficult circumstance, you can see how good came out of it. Sometimes a week after, sometimes a decade after, uh, Sometimes I think we'll go to our grave for some things not knowing how it worked out for good or what the plan of God was in that loss and in that brokenness. I mean, I think of the story of the book of Job. You know, the whole premise of the book of Job is God allowed Satan to cause the suffering in the book, in the life of Job. And Job never really understood that really what was going on was a cosmic battle between God and Satan, and he was simply one of the participants in that battle. He had to wait to go to heaven to get the rest of the story. And I think, and I know, I know that in some of our lives, we're going to experience things that are difficult, things that are painful, and deep, deep losses, and we'll go through our lives not knowing how this is going to work together for good. And yet, we can go with trust and hope in God that it will indeed work together for good. Another important thing about this doctrine is that we've got to avoid fatalism or passivity. You know, God works all things together for good, but a lot of times I've observed that, that God accomplishes his purpose through people who care deeply, who are deeply engaged, who are willing to work hard, who are willing to sacrifice, and who are passionate and persuasive about the tasks that they're doing. And, you know, whether you're working with kids or working in politics or working, uh, you know, for, for some other cause or some other purpose, the fact that God is in control of all things doesn't give us a green light just to be passive about how we interact with this world, but, but it should be something that motivates us to be engaged and, that, and believe that through the fact that he's put a burden on our heart, through the fact that he's 
put us in a circumstance through the fact that he perhaps has given us the ability or the resources to make a difference, he is going to accomplish his purpose. This shouldn't lead us to disengage from the suffering and the loss and the issues in the world, but to re-engage in a more passionate and intense way. Another aspect of this is, you know, this is a cosmic principle. God works all things together for good. But when you have a friend who's suffering, you need to be present in the moment, not jump up into the cosmos, but to be present, to be empathetic, to be understanding, to bear their burdens, and to step in their shoes in the moment that they're suffering. A little bit later in the book of Romans, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, You know, it's not really comforting in the midst of tragedy just to walk in and say, well, guys, cheer up. God's going to work all this together for good. I was at lunch on Wednesday and I got a call from the wife of a friend of mine that he had just passed away and uh, under tragic conditions. I've spent the last uh, couple days with, with his wife and with his uh, teenage kids working through this and talking through this. And, you know, it, it, uh, I, and I had this passage on my mind. I even had this point in my mind, and it, it just struck me how inappropriate at any point in the midst of this tragedy it would have been to say, well, you know, God's going to work this together for good. It was, just wasn't the time, wasn't the place that would have been a failure of weeping with those who weep and, and and entering into the tragedy and the experience that they were having right then. So even as we hold on to this, remember the importance of empathy, of being present in the moment, especially when you're dealing with or a friend or, or family member who's going through a particularly difficult time. So this is a powerful doctrine, but handle it carefully. Recognize that powerful things can do damage if they're not handled right. Uh, And another thing that we forget sometimes with this is what is good? It says all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. And, you know, in America, we define good in terms of realizing the American dream, you know, achieving personally and financially, having a, you know, perfect spouse and perfect kids and a perfect life, uh, getting to go on two nice vacations a year, however we might be inclined to define good but you need to know that God defines your good and my good differently look at verse 29 it's very important he says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son you need to understand that God is more committed to your holiness than even your happiness And God is willing to take everything else away from you if that's what it takes to make you more like Jesus. God's best for you is not that you gain the whole world but lose your soul. God's best for you and for me is that we become like his son. And that's the good for you. That's the source to your ultimate blessing. That's the source to your ultimate prosperity. That's the source of your ultimate happiness. And that's what God is accomplishing. So sometimes that means that professional reversals will never get re-reversed. That sometimes means that relational losses will never be 
repaired. That sometimes means that financial losses will never be restored. That sometimes means that physical pains or physical disabilities are never going to be healed in this life. But for someone who believes, for someone who trusts, the promise is that God will even use those things to make us more like his son. And that's the opportunity that for all of us, as we go through those difficulties, if we go through them by faith, the question is not necessarily how can I get back to prosperity and health and wealth, but how can I work through this circumstance to become more like Jesus? That's God's agenda for you and for me. So, so there's, this is a powerful principle with some potential pitfalls, you've got to remember, but finally, I want you to realize that, that this isn't a logical abstraction from the Bible. It's really something we learn from our encounter with the person and work of Christ and with our understanding of the gospel. Because where is it ultimately that we see the wisdom of God? The Bible says that the wisdom of God is in the person of Jesus. The wisdom of God is in the story of the gospel. Because in the wisdom of God... He sent his son to become one of us on that first Christmas, to live the life that we couldn't live, to die and pay for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God and then to conquer sin and death for you and me on the cross at the first Easter. That's where we see the wisdom of God. And that's where we see the power of God. I mean, how ultimately do you know that God loves you? How ultimately can you be sure that God is working all things together for your good? When we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We don't believe this doctrine because it's logical. We believe this doctrine because it's incarnate in the person and work of Christ. The love of God is incarnate in the person and work of Christ. And we know God loves us because he sent his son to die for us, to atone for our sins. And finally, we see in the person of Christ, in the life of Christ, in the work of Christ, God's amazing reversing power. I mean, there was no darker day, more bleak day, more evil day, and more unjust day than the day when Jesus was betrayed by Judas and denied by Peter when he was arrested by the Romans and condemned in a kangaroo court, when he was beaten, when he suffered, when he was nailed to the cross. Nothing was darker, nothing was more unjust. There was no greater suffering than when the Son of God called out to his Father and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no darker night of the soul than that. There was nothing more hopeless than when he breathed his last and died. His disciples all looked at him and said, well, I guess it wasn't true. I guess he failed. I guess he didn't bring the kingdom. I guess he's not the Messiah because a, a crucified Messiah was a failed Messiah by, their, by all of their understandings. And yet, you know the story. In a couple of weeks, we'll celebrate the story that God took the darkest day. God took the most unjust day. God took the most horrific suffering and he turned it around. 
three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. And God wrote a story through the life of Jesus that nobody saw coming, that nobody could have understood, that nobody could comprehend. And that's why the disciples were completely surprised, completely caught off guard. Bible says in Ephesians 1, Paul prays for all believers, and he says, I want you to know the power of God for you, the power of God that's like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised his son from the dead. The, the resurrection of Jesus isn't just an, a logic, uh, a, something that happened long ago. It's a power that's available to you and to me right here and right now to reverse your brokenness, to reverse your tragedy, to reverse your pain. And, and believing in the gospel is being assured that he certainly will do that one day. So this is a promise. This is our hope. If we'll believe in Jesus, we're believing in a God who can take the worst things and leverage them and reverse them to establish his kingdom and to redeem all of his children. And so when things happen to us and we're confused, even though we don't know how the story is going to end, we can trust that he's writing a beautiful story and each one of us is an essential part of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your sovereignty. I thank you for your sufficiency. I pray that you would renew in us the ability to trust in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.